0: morning Good morning. welcome once again to by grace we are thrilled that you are here to worship with us this morning if you have your Bibles with you I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 4 today we're going to continue going verse by verse through this letter as is our custom and we have made it as far as Galatians 4 10 Galatians 4 10 And this is God's word. And all of us should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 4.10 You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we need you to give us eyes that our bodies were not born with. We need you to give us ears, not the ones attached to our minds and our hearts and our bodies, but ones that are given from above. Lord, we need new eyes and new ears and new hearts that we would receive all that you have for us Oh, our Heavenly Father, may we live by your Spirit. Teach us again and afresh this morning the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and empower your people to forsake their flesh, the world, the devil, and to embrace you as the image that you are molding us into. May we live in love more like Jesus. We ask you to do it in his name. And all God's people agree. Who do you want to be like? We're relational people, yes? And in getting to know other people and seeing other people, listening to other people, There are people that something inside you gravitates towards. There's a gravity in someone that affects you, drags you, draws you to them. There's a characteristic that they have. Maybe it's an integrity or an ability that you wish and desire more of to be involved in your life. Who do you want to be like? And what about them interests you, excites you? Why do you think of them? Is it an area of expertise? Is it an area of, with hard work, you too can become like them? Maybe it's someone whose life you evaluate And say, gosh, I want more of that in my life. I want to meet with them. I want to listen to them. I want to be with them. I want to copy what's copyable. And I want to grow to become these things that I see, that I want, that I'm drawn to. Who do you want to be like? What about them do you want to be like? And what costs will you pay to be like them? As we come to Galatians 4, we come in the middle of this argument. Paul is astounded, we read early on, how quickly they who received the gospel with such tremendous joy, we're so quickly forfeiting not only the joy, but the source of that joy to return to a way of life that is soul-crushing, life-extinguishing, internally and externally. They have understood not only that God adopts people into his family, which is amazing. But that he has done all the work that is required for that adoption. You can be a son in God's family, not because of your niftiness or your natural self not because of your effort and discipline, not because of your work, not because of your sincerity, but because of his unimaginable grace and mercy. The gospel is not about what you do for God. It is not about a favor that eludes you. It's about a favor given to you in full, up front. Gospel is not about what you do for God. Paul is hammering in every way he knows how. He speaks it boldly and loudly. He whispers it tenderly, as we'll see today. But there is a level of incredulous confusion. Why, having been given the rights and joys and blessings of sonship, would you even consider returning to slavery? Paul's not ignorant to his own temptations. Paul does not believe that he walks on water. Paul knows that he follows the one who walked on water, not mistaking the two. Galatians is filled with warnings and prayers, urges, commands, but probably even in greater amount, truth. That explains, that supports, that undergirds all of those things. See, the reality is everyone wants to be transformed. All of us see our lacks and believe in the power and process, perhaps, of growing in those deficiencies or seeing them wiped out altogether. All of us know strengths that we have, but we also know that they are not yet maximized. They are not as good and best and fast, or as large or small or as powerful. Pick a whole list of adjectives. We're after one of them in some way. And make no mistake, In his letter, Paul wants to return or bring about a change in the people he's writing to. He understands that at all times, worldviews collide. At all times, theology collides. Philosophy collides. We've believed as a culture that religion is something that should be placed and kept in the private sector while taking things that we know belong in the private sector and putting them out on display, parading them out, as it were. But the reality is greater than that. Your non-believing friends... Family members, co-workers, neighbors. They share their faith, if we call it that, with you all the time. Without apology. In fact, most of the time, they assume that everyone good and moral and reasonable, all the right citizens around us, think the same way, believe the same things. Or should. Should. In some way, and in some degree, everyone is trying to change people. Themselves, their family, others. And so don't think that anything that's happening in this letter is an isolated academic exercise. Don't get me wrong. I love to bat around theology with great theologians, not counting myself among them. But there are times where it's just ideas. It's just debate. It's just intrigue. It's just argumentation. Which is hilarious at times because we know people better than most people know people. And so sometimes it might even be an escape to the realm of ideas. Because people are hard. When Paul asks the question in verse 9, how can you turn back again? It's not an academic question. He's not trying to score philosophical points or win a theological debate. He is internally broken over their dangerous place. The center of this section that we're going through in chapter 4 hinges on this question. What is it that they originally turned to? And what is it that is leading them to turn away again? So when we see in verse 10 what looks easily throwawayable, it looks easily discardable. We see this example given about religious observance, religious duty, religious obligation. He's pointing out that they are not just questioning things in their minds or their hearts or their spirit, that they are being affected by the choices of their life in the choices of their life. You are observing days and months and seasons and years. This does not look like a big deal to us, perhaps. But this is a matter of religious obligation for them. Like so many Pharisees, and like the Judaizers were instructing and promulgating, propagating, disseminating, Commanding. They were returning to the whole system of Jewish feasts, moons, and holidays, festivals. They were marking based on and determined by the rotation of planets. They looked to the travel of stars perceptively as we travel in orbit around the sun for power for lucky days if you go to an asian culture you will quickly learn the importance of the color red and of the numerology system Some days you always do X, Y, or Z because that's the lucky day to do it. It sounds silly or perhaps trivial to us, but consider yourself, how important is Christmas to you? Easter, do you order your life around such days and observances? We do as a church to some degree, right? We fill the stage, yes? Platform full. In fact, now we're laying out chairs in front of it. Is anybody sad about that? You like that? I love that. And so we are observing a special religious day. In the season of Advent, wait, we have a title for that. We focus on elements of the incarnation that we might understand and enjoy So the question then becomes, is Paul upset about any religious observance? No. He's upset that they are observing special religious days as a mandatory means of future justification. When you have all the favor of God up front. Abraham had his faith counted as righteousness. He believed the gospel, and that's the mechanism God used to rebirth him in that moment. See, these Jewish feasts and festivals... The day of atonement, the feast of weeks, passover, Yom Kippur, the year of jubilee, all of these things are great until Christ comes. For they all point to him. They point to our need for him. They themselves are shadow of a coming substance. The lights in here could be conducive to you using your hand to make a shadow on the floor around you. Do it. Is, is the shadow on the floor you? If Peter Pan has taught us nothing, it's that when the fairy tells you to clap, you clap. And that the shadow and the person... The substance are different. So why am I a Sabbatarian, you might ask. I might respond, what do you think a Sabbatarian is? But we understand that God has woven into the DNA of life for all humans in all places throughout all the ages That one day in seven is to be worshiping him. And in that way, it's holy. It's to be set apart. But do we do that to secure salvation? Because it eludes us? Why do we do it? Because we get to do it. Do we have to do it? Some days it feels like that, perhaps. Plenty of life's distractions are available to you to tune in and out, to feel like your worship of God is pushed to the edges. But we have a joyous freedom to worship the Lord. But we do not do so to acquire for him that which he's unwilling or unwanting to give us. When Paul uses these elements in verse 10, he's using them to identify how much control of their freedom they have relinquished back to a religious system, wait for it, that was never for them. It was for Israel. And it was a shadow to point to the substance. It's a shadow of that which came. So no longer do we return to the shadow, we delight in the substance. Because the heart of both paganism which the Gentiles are very familiar with, and legalism that the Judaizers are advertising and advancing upon, the religious obligation is to do your duty. It's a chorus of both views. Do your duty, or precocious gods will do whatever mischief to you they desire. Do your duty, and maybe when all is said and done, God will have favor on you. They are both damnable heresies, different forms of the same disease from which they've been rescued by Christ by the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and it is for this risen Christ that Paul labors and he does so at great cost to himself to his body we'll see in a second but when he says here in verse 11 i'm afraid i may have labored over you in vain I don't think he's saying, I believe that. I think he's saying, this question has entered my mind. What are you doing? How are you thinking? What are you thinking? Why are you thinking that? Why are you choosing that? Do you not see with the eyes God gave you the difference? Do you not hear The Spirit's voice with the ears that he has given you from above. So Paul here is in pastoral anguish. He's not angry, he's hurt and scared because they are in danger. I don't think Paul cares as much about his labor as he does their rebirth. Verse 12, brothers, I urge you, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. In other words, I gave up my identity as a Jew. I know it's emptiness. I know the torture and tyranny of that way of life. Run! And I have become like you, unburdened by the law that I was never intended to keep. And also, they're in unity. The Gentiles aren't left the same encountering Christ any more than the Jews should be left the same when encountering Christ. And in fact, as we will see This become like me and become like you ultimately is part of this unity that they have with Christ. If you are united to Christ by faith, according to the grace of God, then you are one, one in Christ. No hierarchy there. And then, verse 13. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. If you're new to the faith or new to studying the New Testament, you will discover that the Apostle Paul's physical body and ailments, his health problems, chronic ones, play a pretty significant role in what he does and how he does it and why God is good and overcomes and is glorified in and through it. But one of the things that is most referenced here is the impaired vision of Paul. If you want to look this up on your own, I encourage you, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, or Galatians 6, verse 11... But you will see that Paul has trouble seeing. This might be the condition that they are referencing as Paul remembers their use and receiving of him. You can see in verse 13 as it would continue that they were willing to give him their eyes. Probably as a solution to the problem he's struggling with perhaps. It's kind of hard to do. Uh, donor eyeballs in their day. It's probably tricky in ours, but happens. But Paul has this chronic impaired vision. But where did it come from, or are we sure that that's definitely it? We are not sure specifically of what is being referenced here. I have a guess. I think it's a good guess, but do not hold it as tightly as the gospel I declare to you. But listen to this autobiography. When Paul's writing his second letter to the church in Corinth, he gives sort of an autobiography of his physical sufferings. Where does his grotesque face or body or condition come from? Why the limp? Sometimes we picture Paul like leaping up onto a stage in a shiny coat. Ready to sell, gee, sorry, wrong vision. Listen to the autobiography of Paul's body in 2 Corinthians 11. Kind of got to jump in mid argument, but he says this Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Meaning, if you want to boast and compare, it's folly, but let's do it. Here's the folly that they must do. Are they Jewish? Yes, yeah, so am I. Israelites? Yes, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Remember, he's speaking foolish here. He's, he's, he's using his rhetoric. He says, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, but with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews. Remember, that's his people. The 40 lashes minus one. Because if they gave the 40th lash, they could never lash him again. So they hold the last one so that later on they can beat him just as severely Again, and again, and again, until they give that 40th lash. The cruelty of that violence is beyond speakable. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, I'll add, and dragged outside the city and left for dead. The people stoning him were so convinced of his death, They bothered with him not. Boy, did they have a surprise the next day. Three times Paul was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. If you've seen the movie Titanic, add like 20 degrees to the water temperature and picture him floating adrift for a day and a half treading water, grabbing and losing things, not eating, not sleeping, not resting. On frequent journeys, pretty much every time he went anywhere, He was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, perhaps in fasting, in cold weather, exposed to the elements And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who's made to fall? Am I not indignant? Anybody want to be Paul right now? There are plenty of times in your life, I imagine, where in studying Paul, you're like, oh, oh, that would have been awesome. Awesome to watch, awesome to be with, awesome to be him. And then you get this, and you're like, no, thank you. It's like the worst call to missions ever. If you want to follow Christ, these kind of things are going to happen to you. Line that up with smooth, clean, and easy. Maybe he has a reason to say, through many trials and hardships, we enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Paul's body, riddled with scar tissue. Would we call it from a life well lived? he limps, perhaps, from city to city. Struggles with his vision day or perhaps night. It teaches me a lot about chronic pain. About relating to a body you really wish you could discard quickly. I'm not kidding when I say One of the great joys and hopes of heaven for me is a different body. And Paul's saying, that chronic condition, that chronic pain, that terrible disease, now come, those birth defects and disabilities or lack of abilities, Did you understand and believe in the core of who you are that God uses those things for his glory? That's what Paul's saying here. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, meaning it cost them to host him, They didn't scorn him or despise him. They received him as a messenger of God, an angel of God. No, Paul piles on. I think they received me as they would Jesus Christ himself. If God showed up in the flesh and said, like he did to Zacchaeus, I'm going to party at your house today. You ready? Ready? Would you leave his presence to go clean your house to get ready for him to come? Should you do that? Maybe. Maybe not. Hospitality is tricky, isn't it? If we're really honest, it sounds super simple. You should have people over. Feed them. Have people open. Leave your door open. Anybody can come. But one of the things we see about Christian hospitality is that it's costly and inconvenient at times. So here's the question you can be mad at me for. Who have you given permission to to inconvenience you? Who's allowed to inconvenience you? Because the gospel when taken root, deep root in the human heart, leads us to the kind of suffering and service that allows other people's mess into your pristine life, your perfect housekeeping, your wealthy giant monster of a house, Paul asks at the beginning of 15, what has happened to your blessedness? He's really talking about enjoyment here. And we know that because the literal literal translation here is counted yourselves happy. When I arrived, despite all my burdens, despite all these physical ailments and difficulties, you counted yourselves happy because I was with you. Giving you this gospel that you are now turning your back on. Presenting the God of all glory, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of the nations. Where'd your joy go? Paul's saying, in fact, they were so happy. They had such rich joy together. That his honest testimony, hand-on Bible, sworn in a court of law, is that if possible, someone or many from there would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to Paul. We're not talking about donating an extra kidney. They would have given plural eyes to him. Obviously, that's a statement of hyperbole. Hyperbole, lest you wonder, is an exaggeration to make a point. Obviously, he's not asking anybody to carve their face, and he wouldn't have received it even if they'd have offered it. It's not the way you talk about organ donation. But what he's essentially saying is they would have done anything for him, whatever the cost, whatever the inconvenience. It's another way of Paul saying, You loved me. And I loved and labored with you. One commentator says it this way Paul's infirmity became God's opportunity. Paul's infirmity became God's opportunity. God uses our problems to achieve his purposes. God uses our problems. To achieve and accomplish his purposes. So, how are we to live? How do we respond to that? I think there's an inward and an outward element to responding to this idea. Inwardly, we must trust that God knows what he's doing. How many of you want circumstances in your life to change? How many of you want people in your life to change to improve your circumstances? I'm the only one. I may or may not be referencing you. What do we do? Inwardly, we trust that God knows what he's doing, that you were born at the right time, in the right place, to the right people that you are an experience, a world that he has made and that he sovereignly rules and one that will one day be thoroughly transformed. Sin in all its forms removed, removed from the world, removed from the body, removed from the very presence of the cosmos. And I long for that day in part because people speak about my sin to me. Some of you graciously, gently, consistently show me my sin, call me on my failures, pointing me back to the gospel, pointing me back to the mercy of God and the transforming power of his Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul as he talks about this joy that would have led to eye gouging becoming hostility. We go from hospitality to hostility, and all you have to do is remove two letters inwardly we trust that God knows what he's doing and outwardly we watch him glorify himself in and through our and others trials listen to how this plays out what then has become of your blessedness your joy For I testify that you, if possible, would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16, here we go. Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth? By telling you the truth? This is the hardest part of elding. It's the hardest part of preaching, teaching. Whether it's in a living room or a classroom or here or anywhere else. It's saying things that you know other people don't want to hear. Parents, you know this. Friends, do you know this? Do you love somebody so much you will tell them the truth when it risks the friendship? Do you love your siblings, your sister, or your brother Enough to tell them the truth, even when they're begging you to flattery. They want you to praise them. But what you're doing isn't praiseworthy. How do you handle that pickle? Does that ever come up for you? <laughs> if you have your eyes open, if you have your ears open, if you're thinking beyond yourself about other people, you see it a lot. I can't tell you the number of phone calls or emails or conversations I have where somebody wants to talk about something I just said for somebody else. How do I get so and so to hear you? Sorry, y'all. Bring them here and it becomes my job. Take me to your living room and it's my job. But also, the gospel I say is your gospel. It's your mouth. It's your relationship. It's your. So if you're not equipped, that's my problem. Let's equip you. If you're scared, then that's my problem. And let's wrestle that fear and replace it with faith and awe. Watching a children's cartoon. On a Sunday, when the kids were little, we had special cartoons that they would watch on the Sabbath. Talk to you more about that if you want. One of them was called 321 Penguins. Is that right? Okay, good. I always get the order of the numbers wrong. Apparently, not always. All right. I walk into the room, and there's two legs of what is clearly like a grandma or an old teacher or something on the screen. And she quotes a Bible verse to the kids. And I kid you not, I had somehow never paid attention to this Bible verse. And apparently that was the whole structure of the show, right? There was some story that's happening in some Bible situation that related to it and they could teach the the Bible lesson, which was great. But when she said these words, my heart both leapt and sank. So I figured I'd burden you with the same verses. <laughs> the wounds of a friend can be trusted, enemies multiply kisses. The wounds of a friend can be trusted if you have cancer. And a surgeon can remove that cancer from you. Is he not your friend to cut you? Does it hurt? Will there be recovery? Might it last or linger or scar? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And you might limp like Jacob the rest of your life with a new name like Israel. Are you an Israelite? I am. I wrestle with God and I have the limp to show it. And that's more than some brokenness in my body I did. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. Because we live in community and we do life together as gospel friends and neighbors, as members of the same local body and expression of the church of Jesus Christ, we should be tactically, graciously, carefully, and deliberately wounding each other by telling the truth. Who in your life tells you the truth? Not the flattery, not the fun. In fact, if you listen to almost any Bruno Mars love song, and he is the tip of the iceberg, you're going to hear the appeal to tell someone they are perfect, that they need no change that God could do nothing to improve them or their circumstances than he has already done. You are perfect just the way you are. Lie. I know y'all. Ain't one of you perfect. And I know me. I am not perfect. So to tell me that I'm perfect is to imprison me into the lie and fantasy that you want me to participate in. Sorry, y'all, there's a reality and the Bible governs how we understand that reality because God is who he is and he's not who he's not. And because transformation is real, it happens It happens in you. It happens through you because of Christ. It does not mean that all your circumstances are going to be smooth, clean, and easy. Far be it from true is that. The reality for us is that the wounds of faithful friends are to be desired and received and offered Graciously and humbly, but do not be profuse in your kisses. That is the way of the enemy. You're fine just the way you are. Oh, no, dear. And why are they doing this? Why are they throwing these kisses? Why do they want the Galatians to adopt the slavery and obsession of self salvation, self redemption? self-determination because they want to shut you out. That's what verse 17 says. They want to create division inside the church. They want Jew or Gentile to be more powerful in your identity than the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of that cross to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Read Ephesians 2 and highlight 14. Memorize, 14, believe, 14. There is no racial or ethnic division allowed in God's church. And to say otherwise is a damnable offense because you are saying heretically that what God has done hasn't happened that what God loves, he despises. What God creates and sacrifices for means no thing to you. They made much of you, Paul says, but it was not for a good purpose. Y'all, start looking for kind cursing. Curses given politely. Politely. Curses ensnaring you and condemning you. Flattery is nefarious activity. They will con you out of your birthright with a smile on your face. Paul's saying, no, no, no. They make much of you, but it's not for a good purpose. They want to shut you out. They want to pull you aside. They want you to be like them. They believe in transformation, but what they want you transformed back into is the same death, duty, and misery that leads to destruction now and forever, Notice the tender language of 19. The use of the metaphor of childbirth and labor, my little children. Paul's pastoral heart is bleeding out. Because he saw them birthed in Christ. He saw them born again. And now they've begun in Christ. They're born in Christ. And now it is time for them to grow up in Christ that he would be formed in them. Friends, brothers, sisters, conversion is the beginning of the Christian life. It is not the whole of the Christian life. It's merely the start of the Christian life. Paul's afraid he labored over them in vain. No, he wants to be with them. He believes if he was there, it would be different. He wants to change his tone because of his confusion. It's a brilliant man to be perplexed. But it's an anguish. It's a hurt. It's a devastation. Not because he questions what he did, but because he what he deeply, earnestly desires for them. He wants them to live in the sonship God has provided. He wants them to forget and reject the notions of slavery, the patterns of evil, the prospects of finding more favor from God by what you do. But favor from God does not come by keeping the law. It doesn't come by the obedience to the demands of idols. No, no, Gospel is not about what you do. It's about what God in Christ has done for us. The inheritance of sonship brings life in the Holy Spirit. Close with this quote Something happens to people who enjoy the ministry of God's word. The more they learn the Bible, the more they start to look like Christ. They start to think the things he thinks, to love the things he loves, to do the things he does, even suffer the things he suffers. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would free us from the demands of law and legalism, from the demands and duties of godless religion. Jesus, we ask that you would renew us in the power and freedom of your grace, the joy of your word. Father, may you forgive us and show us people, men and women and even children, who will speak truth to us even when it cuts. Even when it hurts, forgive us for our myriad of flatteries. Forgive us for the moments when we have sought to gain favor in the eyes of man at the expense of truth, at the cost of truth. Jesus, you have rescued us from bondage. See to it, O Lord that we never return to it. We ask it in the name of our Lord, of our Savior, of our kinsman Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree.